What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. It's all here! 3,000 gallons of guzzling, just like you asked. I'm gonna unhitch the pod. Film spotting, powered by Guzzoline since the podcast wars of Ot 5. It's much better for the environment. <laughs> That's true. Charlize Theron as Furiosa in that clip from Mad Max Fury Road. Director George Miller's return to the franchise he created back in the 80s. Along with Theron, UK actor Tom Hardy takes over for Mel Gibson as Mad Max Rakitansky. Our review of the so far critically acclaimed Fury Road. Plus, we'll revisit our top five car scenes. That and more. Guzzoline! Ahead on film spotting. Spotting is presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, in keeping with a can theme this week, they are showing currently Polytechnique. This comes from the French-Canadian director. The name, pronunciation, we've been going with, for better or for worse, is Denis Villeneuve. After the one-two punch of Prisoners and Enemy, the director has been tapped to reboot Blade Runner. Did you know that? I did not know that. That sounds promising. Not even being a huge fan of Enemy, I can see his sensibility working for that. His new film plays in competition this year at Cannes, and this hot-button pick from the 2009 Fest shows his sharp virtuosity, forcefully made, and hard to forget. Also playing on Mubi is a film from one of my favorite directors, Andrei Tarkovsky. It's Nostalgia. With only seven feature films, Tarkovsky created a world of prophecy, madness, grace, spiritual transcendence. Nostalgia was made while he was in exile from the USSR. It's a uniquely personal masterwork that stands with his best, Mubi says. It's one I have yet to see. Tarkovsky was a winner of the Best Director Prize at Cannes, an honor he shared with his hero, Robert Bresson. And Nostalgia is available in HD. There you go. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. We've been doing this show for over 10 years now, so assuming we're immortal, Josh and I are just going to pull a Phil Connors and drive this car called Film Spotting onto the train tracks here. We're not the god, just a god. I'll keep that in mind. Our top five car scenes, which we originally shared last May, is coming up later in the show. But first, despite the warnings from male rights groups that the Mad Max franchise had gone soft with Fury Road, Adam and I risked it all and gave the movie a shot. Do we still have our man cards? Everything is dependent on oil. Yeah, killing for gasoline. Whoa, almost out of water. 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 Now there's the water wars. Here they come again. Everybody's gone out of their mind. the only one, Max. Out here, everything hurts. You want to get through this? 
do as I say. Now pick up what you can and run. I expected we'd be talking about a few things when it came to Mad Max Fury Road, Adam. Its place within the Mad Max franchise, Tom Hardy stepping into the dusty boots of Mel Gibson, whether or not the action lives up to the sort of zen chaos we both admire and most recently brought to bear on the Fast and the Furious franchise. What I didn't expect was that Mad Max Fury Road would become a touchstone for a conversation about gender and feminism. But it has, in loud internet fashion, so that's where I'd like to start. Even before the movie came out, a men's activist website called Return of Kings called for a boycott of the film, in all seriousness, from what I can tell. This 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 appears to be for real. They claim that the movie was trying, quote, to kowtow to feminism. The main complaint? that Max, the post-apocalyptic wanderer now played by Tom Hardy, appeared to play second fiddle to a new female character called Imperator Furiosa. Am I pronouncing that right? I know I have trouble For with... For once, I think you got a pronunciation the names correct. of listeners from other countries, <laughs> let alone apocalyptic futures. Anyways, Imperator Furiosa, she's played by Charlize Theron. Indeed, he is sidetracked by her. The plot mostly involves Furiosa's attempt to smuggle out a group of young women who are being forced to be breeders for a deranged warlord named Immortan Joe. It gets better. I'm glad you looked that up. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they yell it in the film quite a bit, but they they're yelling yell a lot, lot of things. things. <laughs> Immortan Joe actually is played by Hugh Keysburne, and he is the bad guy in the original Mad Max. No kidding. Yeah, I didn't realize that till afterwards. Max now, he happens to be a personal prisoner of one of Joe's foot soldiers, played by Nicholas Holt. So, when these soldiers take off in pursuit of Furiosa's truck, Max is dragged along. Even with this emphasis on female characters, though, some aren't so sure about Fury Road's feminist credentials. On Twitter, Anita Sarkeesian, host of the web series Feminist Frequency, bluntly declared, I saw Fury Road, I get why people like it. But it isn't feminist. One of the reasons she gave in a series of tweets was this. Feminism doesn't simply mean women getting to partake in typical badass guy stuff. Feminism is about redefining our social value system. So, Adam, where do you fall on the question of whether or not Mad Max Fury Road is feminist? Or do you think that this debate itself has hijacked a movie that is, at its core, just a brilliant take-no-prisoners action flick. Well, I guess I can't say that it's hijacked it because I only just became aware of this raging debate. Sometimes I'm a little bit behind on these things as we discuss these movies because I just haven't been really reading those blogs or clicking on all those links in the tweets. Basically, I do know everybody that I follow on Twitter and Facebook has been in love with this movie. Beyond that, I hadn't really been too invested in this larger conversation. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. I guess the question I put back on you, Josh, is can I say that it's not a feminist movie, but still like the movie? I think that may be the more challenging question to answer. And one of the things I was going to put back on you without knowing that we were going to start off the conversation this way is how do we talk about how entertaining, how thrilling, how fun it is to see a quote-unquote strong female character like Charlize Theron plays here without it coming off as totally patronizing. I don't know that there's a way to have that conversation anymore without it seeming like that. Oh, look, she can be a violent badass just like all the other men in this movie and like the other men we're used to seeing in action movies. So that's problematic in and of itself. And I think maybe we can come back to that as we talk more about that character and the performance. But that initial question I 
through to you, can I say it's feminist but still like it, it raises two other questions. Are we using the movie as a springboard to really have a discussion about women and power and culture, or are we using it as a test that the movie either passes or it fails, and then if it fails, the movie's a failure? And then how much wiggle room is there as well? Sarkeesian makes several great, really nuanced points, and I'm sure we'll come back to a few more of them in her Twitter timeline, I probably agree with more of what she has to say than disagree. But when she says it isn't feminist, it makes me think that there's almost this checklist for art. And the movie either checks those boxes, however many there are, or it doesn't check the boxes. And if it doesn't check all of them, can we still appreciate what it's doing versus what it isn't doing? And so let's put a movie like Fury Road in the context of the other Mad Max films. In both of them, I think we can pretty much say blanket statement all the women are peripheral characters at best. Some of them are sort of sexual sidekicks to these scavengers, these gangs out there. Or in the first Mad Max, she's basically a helpless spouse yeah. and a helpless mom. There is one woman warrior in the road warrior, but she doesn't get a exactly. lot of time You'd there. still have it's, to say. It's token. Yeah, she's peripheral at best. So we go from that, and that goes back to a question a few weeks ago when we were talking about The Breakfast Club and the ending of that movie where I threw out the question, is something that isn't feminist than anti-feminist. And I don't think you could call either of the first two Mad Max movies feminist, but does that then make them not feminist? You put that in contrast to this movie, which, as you set up, not only has Theron and her character in the lead. She really is not just a co-lead. She, I think, is the main character of this film. I'd agree. You have the whole plot based around these women no longer wanting to be objects and searching for a way out of this system of oppression. And then not only that, you get the added layer of, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, some other female characters they encounter along the way and their whole heritage and the legacy of that and their potential future together as women and as a society. That's a far cry from anything we saw in the first two Mad Max movies and more than what we see in most Hollywood action movies. So is that then not enough or is it enough to still give this movie some points for what Miller is trying to accomplish? I think it depends on who's asking the question, right? And I should say I didn't get a chance to revisit Beyond Thunderdome leading up to this. So I, I can't say how that might play into this tradition or non-tradition of the franchise, but it absolutely depends on who's asking the question and what you're looking for in a film. And you and I are both coming at it as movie people first, mm -hmm. or let's say as text-oriented film lovers not someone from feminist film theory or any sort of political film theory or any sort of ideology. Sure. And if you are looking at the film through that lens first, you may be holding it up to standards and saying, because I'm aware of this, I like to call attention to these, what are important concerns. This is why I like reading people who have this perspective on films. That's what you're going to draw upon. I'm just a boy watching a movie, <laughs> hoping it does right by its girls. Mm -hmm. That's where... I come at films as far as from a feminist concern. I don't like to see movies that are, you know, treating women in a sexist way, certainly in a misogynist way. And as the movies have evolved, I think we have higher expectations for mm -hmm. how they treat female characters or portray female characters. And from that perspective, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised to find that Hardy does get pushed aside. 
And we get this really intriguing alternate story within the Mad Max world, true to the Mad Max world, and what it looks like, what it feels like, what's at risk, but from a different perspective, as you noted, within the context of the franchise. Uh, I wrote about this as a movie to me of milk and blood, and it really does add that other nourishing clearly female mm-hmm. element to it that gives us a whole nother view on this post-apocalyptic world. The, just the fact that this warlord, this Immortan Joe, the way he treats bodies in general as commodities. So for many of the men, prisoners like Max, it means they're living blood bags. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's tied to the Nicholas Holt character, the soldier, by a chain and a tube because he's feeding him his blood to keep this guy going. That's horrifying. And at the same time, he not only has these women who are breeders, but he has another group of women who are being forced by machine to produce breast milk. This is also a commodity that, from what I could tell, he trades with other warlords. And the way that reframed this society that's been built, that's risen from the ashes of our world, emphasized to me the terror of it and the cruelty of it and the Mm -hmm. exploitation of it. So whether or not that defines the movie as feminist, you and I are probably, we don't have the credentials to answer that. But whether or not it made it a very interesting woman-focused picture mm-hmm. for me that I don't see very often in action films, certainly it did. And it's perhaps the main thing that I appreciated about it. One of Sarkeesian's tweets was, Sometimes violence may be necessary for liberation from oppression, but it's always tragic. Fury Road frames it as totally fun and awesome. I thought that was one of her more provocative ideas. I mean, it really made me think about the movie and what I appreciated the most about it. And I think this brings us back to that Furiosa character and what we can see in her beyond just being someone who's as tough as the boys, basically. What more is there? I think she not only is the lead character in the film, she's the much more compelling hero who certainly has a more heroic endeavor. And I think that makes her a more interesting figure to follow. She certainly also has a more emotional arc in the movie where we watch what her character goes through as she discovers things about her past and things about her present and her future. I think that's all important, but I think I do disagree with Sarkeesian on that point. As much as, look, we're going to talk about the filmmaking a little bit, we're going to talk about the chaos of it, and I'll use that word thrill again. There is certainly a thrill in seeing car chases and extended car chases done right Mm -hmm. on the big screen. There is, without a doubt. But I didn't find, overall... Fury Road to be just totally fun and awesome. You use words like terror and cruelty in a little bit of a different context, but nevertheless, I was thinking about those words as I was watching these car chases. The car chase in this movie really is that. It is them trying to get from one point to another and then back again, basically. (laughs) They pause, catch their breath, turn around. There are some pauses. I love that. But that's it. And that could be all very entertaining. But Josh, for me, it really is all about, of course, the stakes. It wouldn't be compelling to watch if I wasn't thinking about how I was invested in these characters and what the characters are up against, truly. Not only along the way as they're going through this car chase, but what they're trying to accomplish. What this means for these women as they risk their lives in this way. What it means for society as they risk their lives in this way. Yes, there was something entertaining, as I've said, but at the same time, I wasn't watching it just marveling in all of the explosions. That's just not how I appreciate 
action movies. It just isn't. So I wasn't reveling sort of in all of the chaos so much as I was appreciating the craft of the filmmaking, which we'll talk about. But I really was caught up in everything Miller had set up in terms of the ultimate goal of these women and what happens if they fail. That's why it's intense, intense in a good way and intense in, as I mentioned, kind of an excruciating way at times because you know what's at stake. Theron is the reason the film never struck me as being something that was fun and awesome about its violence. Mm -hmm. Hardy, who I do think is good here, he gets sidelined, but I, I think he's good. He has a desperation to it that really registers, but he is also the stoic road warrior we don't learn that much about except for in flashbacks he, he's fairly traditional mm -hmm. in his performance theron gives us something that she just there's a palpable sense of hurt to everything that happens to her somehow she registers that on her face and on her body so that nothing that she endures is fun and nothing did i get the sense that she inflicts on someone else because she does get some of those badass guy scenes mm -hmm. not entirely there's a lot more to her performance than that she gets a few but those either have this sense of if not regret just again of hurt behind them. Now, I don't know if you can call that feminine. I, that would probably get us in trouble to call it that. But there is certainly something distinct about how Theron delivers this action heroine to the way many of our male action stars present it, in which you don't want to show that you've been hurt. Mm -hmm. you, you want to keep up that facade of toughness. Interestingly, one exception that comes to mind is Bruce Willis in Die Hard. And when we did our Sacred Cow review, I think we talked about how you sense that this guy was really in pain. And that, I think, is a good comparison to how we have an attachment to people who are able to communicate that on screen. Another female action character that came to mind to me in comparison to Furiosa is Merida from Brave. One of the things that I liked about that Pixar film was it did move us beyond the see girls can fight too. We had that for a while, particularly in kids films and in some princess films is with Mulan. And, you know, now we're going to show that they have agency and they can be in battle. And I think that was an important step to take. Mm -hmm. But what I liked about Brave is it moved beyond that, even though she was an archer, she was also a sewer. And the climax of Brave beautifully weaves those two things in where sure. there is a whether you want to call one masculine and one feminine, there are two different qualities to her that come together. And I think Furiosa has that sense, too, because there are the action qualities that we've seen so many times before that she pulls off very well. But there are also these other distinct touches that, to me, made everything that happened in the film more felt. You've done this before? Many times. Now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And them? They're looking for hope. What about you? Redemption. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing feminism and the new film Mad Max Fury Road. I'm so with you. That really was the way to put it, that palpable sense of hurt. That's what I was getting at in terms of saying she's really the more compelling hero in this story and has the more emotional arc. And that is the counter to this notion that the violence here doesn't have a tragic element to it. It's precisely tragic because of not only, as I was saying, what we believe to be at stake, but because of what Charlize Theron imbues in that performance. And the fact that Miller takes moments out 
from the action to pause so we take extra notice of those tragic moments. But let's get to the visual style of this film a little bit. I did just catch up with Mad Max and also The Road Warrior. And it's striking to me, especially from the first film to the second film, the jump Miller makes. Huge leap. Visually. I know there are people who love the first one. I know, and I'm not one of them. Okay, good, because I was starting to feel alone. I mean, you can see the vision, and you can see hints of the craft, but that jump is astounding. It is. The shot compositions, the framing, the editing, just understanding how to tell a story economically, it's all there in The Road Warrior, and it's not there in Mad Max. I mean, it's a cult film for a reason. It's got some really nice touches. As you said, the vision is there, but he hasn't figured out how to tell a story economically yet and tell it with the camera. And what I do love about The Road Warrior is seeing that stripped-down, no-nonsense quality to Road Warrior that is really appealing to me. And here, even with this film, as we touched on, there are ebbs and flows in the pacing and intensity. It isn't just wall-to-wall action, even though it does maybe feel like that at times. But especially with The Road Warrior and now this film, you could certainly make the case that they could work as silent movies. And I think that is a credit to Miller. They're obviously very action-driven, but everything you need to know in terms of story and emotion and character is conveyed through the camera and just the setup of shots. And we can sit here and dissect some of those shots. But really, for me, it was watching the way he piled layers upon layers onto these extended chase sequences in Fury Road. And Josh, I know you do like this phrase, Zen Chaos, which first came up during the Furious 7 review. This, to me, seemed to be a symphony of chaos that Miller (laughs) was orchestrating. You sort of start the tanker truck rumbling down the road. It's like the percussion. And then you add in the bikes and the cars in pursuit. Maybe they're the woodwinds on top. And then the brass starts crashing as the makeshift bombs are thrown and explode. And then those strings come in as you get the pole vaulters. I just love watching those pole vaulters, whatever you want to call them, as they're trying to attack the vehicle. And... Yes, this symphony also has its own heavy metal guitarist shredding to kick it all up a with notch. With a flame. With a flame and performing in front of that big amp, which maybe we can talk about that quality to this film and this series as well, that kind of do-it-yourself feel about it that I really do appreciate. But Miller really does here conduct this symphony. Yeah, that that is perfect because he also holds it all in proper tension. It's not that one thing gives, like you were saying, it's not that one thing gives way to the next. They're all together. Right. And nothing, this raises the intensity of these scenes too, is that they don't defeat one challenge and then they're faced with another one. That's not why it feels like uh, this this constant assault on these characters. Mm-hmm. It's that these challenges keep building. So they're thinking, okay, we've got to deal with these guys throwing flame bombs at us. Wait a minute. Now what's, what's this with these poles? Now it's like something new every second. And yet we never lose sight of those other things that have been happening before. So it really is beautifully orchestrated. And talk about a silent film. The pole sequence where the guys are on the very end. I'm sure just about everyone has seen this in the trailer, but maybe you don't get a sense in the trailer of why they're there. Essentially, these poles are in the front of the approaching cars so that they can lean over towards Furiosa's truck and get on it. And so they're going back and forth. And by the time Max finds himself at the end of one of these poles, it reminded me of a Buster Keaton silent film. It had that choreographed acrobatic quality to it. But of course, what's going on around you is something out of maybe Lord of the Rings 
So it's just this crazy combination of styles. And that, I think, gets to the guitarist that you're talking about. That should be a laughable moment. But for some reason, and this has been a through line from the very first film, that's why I'm talking about the vision of this theatrical sense of villainy and music plays a part of that. Another movie I think of when I watch the Mad Max films is Rocky Horror Picture Show, hmm. which you would... Ne- Why? Why should that come well, to mind? There's a horror element, too, well, there's especially horror element, Mad Max. And there's maybe not quite a camp element, right. but in the costume design and the not fact... Not that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is scary, I should <laughs> No, no, but I, I know you mean horror comedy. And, and I think it's that these insane, feral bad guys are having fun. Like they, they've been waiting for this excuse to be let loose and chase somebody down because I, I have a feeling the guy on the guitar truck, he's not sitting in the cave playing that. He, he's got to wait till he's, That's right. till he gets he's let unleashed loose. So he's just unleashed to perform, to perform and, and this is their shot. And that somehow makes them scarier because there's a motivation beyond the levels of they're doing what their boss wants or they need this gas back or these mm-hmm. women back. They're just going to kill you because it's fun. And there's something very scary about that. Yeah, the Keaton comparison is perfect. And I think that also fits nicely with what you were saying about that theatricality and where I was going with that kind of do-it-yourself aesthetic to the film. You're right. That guitarist is absurdly hilarious, and yet it somehow works within the larger scheme of this movie and, I would say, this whole series, because it is about, and I'm going to go back a little bit to our review last week of Slow West, and one of the things we praised with that movie, it's all about survival, so there's a certain practical aspect. And the films are similar in that they're about characters journeying across a similar type of wasteland, and there are scavengers out there and outlaws out to try to take everything you've got, maybe even your life, too. But in Road Warrior, I think about the gate that they have set up to keep out the marauding the bad bus. guys. It's essentially <laughs> Well, you a don't bus. know that, right? Until <laughs> they move it. You look at it, it's this big metal facade. Yeah. And you're instantly fooled by it and you think somehow out in the middle of this desert they've constructed this oil rig and they've also created this gate that keeps out the bad guys and then you realize no it's just the side of a bus that's (laughs) fantastic and the guitarist as we've said here where that could be and certainly in the grand scheme of things is non-diegetic music that someone is adding over the top but Miller makes it seem like it's diegetic and that it's Absolutely. coming from inside the movie yes. world so as things get more and more intense we cut back to that guitar player he's playing in that sync music with the action. he's completely in sync and it seems like it's emanating from him and something about that just makes it seem I don't know, that lack of CGI, that authenticity to it that you really feel, it somehow does imbue it with a little bit more of a visceral response. It provokes more of a visceral response, at least it did in me. Even the idea, as you said, of Mad Max being early in the film a blood bag, taking another human being and saying, well, if I'm going to have a sort of blood transfusion and I'm going to be able to exist in this world, yeah, it may mean I have to lug around another human being who's just going to drip blood into me. Yeah, they're so matter-of-fact about it. Yeah, I love that. Which makes that terrifying, too. But it leads me to a question. Now, this didn't bother me, but I could see 
from what I could tell, and things are moving so quickly that, you know, narrative is not always the first concern. I never got a sense of why there seemed to be this sickness that was pervading some of these soldiers, definitely why he needed the blood bank. Mm -hmm. There were also touches with Max. He has these flashbacks to uh, a child that it's our impression is he wasn't able to save this child. We never get the backstory of that unless we're to assume it's from the Road Warrior. But I don't know if that's no, and I was going to say maybe it's because it's from Thunderdome. Maybe which it's neither from Thunderdome. Of us have seen. Which, I meant which to try to look. That I up. saw, and I just, it's been so long since I've watched. It, I don't remember. So that could be the case. We also don't get a lot of Furiosa's backstory in terms of she mentions at one point she's seeking redemption. I never quite got the sense exactly what she meant by that. I know her connection to where they mm-hmm. eventually end up. So. Partially, you could say those were things that needed to be filled in, but I have to be honest, I didn't feel like I needed that. There was something that I liked about some of this world being a mystery to, and I think it gave me a sense of immediacy and a sense of in the moment, whereas if I was dropped into this Mm -hmm. world, I wouldn't know why the heck these guys are sick and need human blood bags. I'd Or why they spray gray stuff on their lips or or whatever. And, And so rather than it feeling like holes in the plot to me it just felt it added it added a mystery and a sense of immediacy Mm -hmm. there are a few other things that i did think about which maybe helped me back from using the m word that some people have been using masterpiece yeah i couldn't quite go that far and there is a bit of a reliance on cgi here that uh, i wish they'd been able to do away with entirely now some of that i couldn't tell when they were using cgi and that's brilliant some of the background imagery green screen use i could tell and i thought that sandstorm sequence was really weakened by it. That's Not one that approach. felt artificial. Yeah, the yeah. approach was okay because you could see the trucks and you could see the sand coming and there was some sense of the world. But when it envelops them, suddenly we are in CGI land and there's an unfortunate cut that emphasizes that, I thought. After the chaos, we get this extreme close-up of Max buried in sand and he very slowly, monstrously emerges and the grains, like the individual grains mm-hmm. we can see on the screen... And it is just so the opposite of the CGI sand pixels we had just been immersed in that it was kind of like, here, here's bad sand. Here's yeah. really good cinematic sand. Yeah. I wish they'd been able to stay away from that. I'm with you on that front, though. For me, the big thing was some of those storytelling issues. And I didn't have a problem with Furiosa's backstory. I thought they gave me just enough. And overall, I agree with you, though, Josh, that I love the fact that they just throw us into this world and say, catch up. I was thinking about through the first 20 or 25 minutes of this film, what the reaction of studio execs must be to this movie because i know it wasn't the number one movie at the box office this past weekend but it did well it performed very well and so you sit around and you go well we don't have really a bankable star in tom hardy i mean he's not tom cruise and then there's so much going on in the first act of this movie that we don't really understand the language they're using the vocabulary some of their rituals and traditions and it doesn't spend any time giving you the exposition that I think a lot of Hollywood movies would say, well, the audience is going to be lost. here." I think we all were lost, but lost in an exciting way, as you said, that gives it a little bit more urgency and immediacy. That all said, I, too, was scratching my head at times wondering, "Okay, could I use just a little bit more information about why this character, the leader, is so driven to breed with these women and create a new race of people? Is it just because he's trying to create a better class of people in some way? 
but what is it about these children that would be perfect and everyone else isn't? There were enough of those little plot things along the way that had me distracted at times. Another one would be, and actually I think this would fit in with the anti-feminist argument to this film, is that it gives this one woman way too much power to transform the Nicholas Holt character. And I really like yeah, him here, too. Yeah, I was wondering too. if you were going to bring that well, up. Well, you can't help but watch this scene where he finally has one scene where he basically gets caressed by a woman and she talks to him like a human being very soothingly. And all of a sudden, this savage has been tamed and has been completely transformed and is now on their side. Now, I still love how Miller played out that character. The end that he gets is exactly the end that that character should get in the film, regardless of sort of what side he's on, good or bad. I love that aspect. But in terms of how quickly he just kind of becomes one of the gang, that didn't make sense after everything we had seen before it. I'm completely with you on that. I I loved that they kept him. He didn't get cast away when we initially think he did. But that turn doesn't make sense maybe it was almost as if there's another scene or two mm-hmm. in which they've known each other the Holt character and this woman who comes to really be attached to him that they had a relationship back in the cave or where, wherever they live and so that would make a lot of sense if we had just gotten some sense of that why it would pay off later in the film as it does but he's a great character he is. and the way Miller uses him he he's an instrument in your symphony he's one of those elements For that's sure. always always doing something <laughs> yeah. independent of the pursuers and our heroes he's like this this third <laughs> factor you have to consider yeah I'll have to think about what instrument yes. he would be in this he's almost like a clanging cymbal <laughs> Every time he finally does show up. One last point I wanted to make about the film, something that I did like on a political front, though not political in maybe the way we were initially talking about. I wouldn't say this movie is political or is trying to make any real statements about how power is wielded, but it still gets it right in terms of its presentation of power and how it works, certainly to subjugate people. Because Miller shows us all the machinations behind the scenes of this society that the great Amorton Joe <laughs> has created. I liked it better when I didn't know his name. I'm sorry. He seemed much more intimidating. But they're kept hidden. They're inside. They're away from the people. And they literally are machinations, right? It's not just political maneuvering that's going on. But this whole system only works because of all the pulleys yeah, and all these things. He lives above this plateau. That's, that's where he lives and all the people are below. So, right. The that's it. And it all has up. to move in sync with each other to work. And that touch that Miller gives us early in the film where our introduction to him is not seeing him in all his glory as this intimidating figure that people will die for. People can't wait to die for him. He shows us what it takes to prepare him, not for battle, but just to get out of his chair and speak to his subjects. He's Vader-like. He's as well. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's like Darth Vader. He really is mm-hmm. held together by spare parts. He is more machine than human. And by seeing that fallibility that the people, of course, don't see, but we as viewers do. I think it does raise the stakes a little bit because it doesn't make him a sympathetic villain. I wouldn't argue that, but the fallibility makes him maybe a little bit less of a monster. We can see him and see how he's suffering and comprehend his desire. His desperation. Yeah, his desperation, exactly, to breed healthy children. And so those chase scenes, again, those battle scenes, they're imbued with that desperation, with his motivation. It's not just about the fact that he was betrayed by Furiosa and he wants to catch her. It's not just that he really likes these slave wives he has. It's that 
his future and his family's future is on the line. Miller takes the time to show us that. I think that's very much an underlying concern of the film. And a lot of times in post-apocalyptic genre films, we get this question of how is society going to rebuild itself? And and this film, as the other Mad Max movies have done, suggests that, well, the way that's been chosen by this guy is manipulation, exploitation, fear. Those mm-hmm. are the tools he's going to use. And this is the society he has built. Now, if you're Furiosa is pursuing an alternative, and she's chosen these women to help her found that, and she's fallen in with Max, just happenstance, and will maybe let him help them found this society. And the society she's looking to build is one on the action she takes, self-sacrifice, caring for others first, allowing hope. Equality. Equality. And so, you know... Maybe those aren't, I would hope those aren't strictly feminine qualities, but this is a movie that's kind of put it in that context, and I think it works amazingly well. Mad Max Fury Road is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You have to leave it, though, in your best Emperor Joe. What's his name? Immortan Joe. Immortan Joe voice. Which I'm probably mispronouncing. <laughs> well, we've had a few easy editions of Massacre Theater lately, so Adam and I are going with a more obscure scene when we come back. Then we'll buckle up for our list of the best scenes that take place in cars. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Folks, just a quick interruption to let you know that Film Spotting is also brought to you by Squarespace, longtime partner, longtime supporter of Film Spotting. They're the all-in-one website platform. And Josh, I love during this promotion, we get to feature testimonials from Film Spotting listeners and promote some of their websites and their work. And we're going to do that this week with Landry Harlan. I've been an avid listener since freshman year in college, and I credit the podcast so much for expanding my interest in films of all types. I've made it a 2015 New Year's resolution to write more about film and to create a place where all my fellow cinephile friends can share their work as well. Squarespace 7 has allowed me to do this. I can't express enough how easy and fun Squarespace is to use. I have very limited code writing experience, so the thought of building my own website terrified me at first. However, I was quickly put to ease when I began using Squarespace's clean and simple site building tools. I particularly love the ability to find high-quality photos for our contributors' articles quickly through Getty Images and the ability to integrate my site with Google Analytics. And it's so affordable. Even a recent college graduate like me can afford it without delving back into the ramen and knockoff cereals. Mmm, ramen. Simply put, Squarespace has allowed me to create a beautiful headquarters for all my friends' unique and interesting takes on the best in film, TV, music, books, etc. out today. For anyone that's interested in these subjects and wants to see one of Squarespace's best designs up close, head over to our site, The Thoroughfare. It's at tthoroughfare.com. We can't wait to impress you. So I didn't have time to dive into the content at The Thoroughfare, Josh, but when Landry says, if you want to see one of Squarespace's best designs up close, he might be onto something. 
it's a really, really sharp design. Really looks like an inviting website. And if my design comments aren't enough of a recommendation to push you, Josh, to go visit the site, one of their top stories I saw was Ex Machina a new sci-fi classic. Uh, so we so, know they have good taste. There you go. And we will link to The Thoroughfare in the show notes over at filmspotting.net. I don't know that we can say it a whole lot better than Landry did there, but the whole basis for Squarespace is that you get to design a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding required. They offer intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and they do give you a free domain if you sign up for a year with state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. If you want to start your free trial site today with no credit card required, just do it at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM to get a special offer on your first purchase. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code FILM. We should really thank you for making this tour a reality. Know, with your bumbling ineptitude. We should send them something. Fruit basket? Yum, yum. Or would you prefer mini muffins? Okay, we didn't come here to start something with you guys. We just wanted to check you out before the world where we're going to kick your ass. Oh, what? That's right. <laughs> you? You are the kicker of ass? <laughs> yeah. You are so tiny. Like an elf. Or is it a fairy? Sprite. Wie heißt das Wort, das ich meine? Troll. That's it. You are like a troll. Nobody talks to my girl Anna Kendrick like that. Welcome back to Film Spotting. While plenty of folks checked out Mad Max Fury Road last weekend, the box office champ, by a wide margin, take that, Furiosa, Becca is here to rule the day, was less about surviving murderous gangs of apocalyptic thugs as it was about surviving a songs about butts riff off. Pitch perfect too, Josh. You realize I have no idea what you're talking about. No, you have no idea. But it's one of the best sequences in the movie. Song about butts riff off. What is that? It's magic. It's a little bit of magic. (laughs) Sounds magical. I am not alone in my love for the Barden Bellas, certainly. There are lots of film spotting listeners out there who also loved Pitch Perfect and were looking forward to Pitch Perfect too. Was anyone looking forward to it as much as you? Because it was where was it on your most anticipated films of twenty fifteen list? Three? Yeah, I think maybe three, and I had it as my number two of the whole summer. Okay. Yeah, so it's up there. And did it live up to it? Yeah, because it's a sequel. So it's not like I actually expected it to top the first one. I expected it to have some problems that sequels have, and this movie certainly does. Basically, everything good about the first movie, they tried to jam into the second one. There's more of everything, including more of all the supporting characters like Rebel Wilson as Fat Amy and all the quirks of the various characters that were funny sporadically in the first one now get amplified in this film. And there's a lot of plot. The other one was pretty sparse in terms of just following the Anna Kendrick's character and what she was going through here. There are a lot of competing storylines, different characters going so off in different directions. Music? No, there's actually more music okay. too. That's what I mean. There's more of everything. But by the end of it, they find a way, Elizabeth Banks directing the film here, they find a way to pull it all together. And as I'm watching the finale, the big musical number, which is not a spoiler, of course, if you know anything about Pitch Perfect, you know it's going to end with some kind of sing-off. I though not about it would butts. be like a marathon race. <laughs> it's not. For the sequel. No. Mix it up a little bit. There's a big singing They could sing while they spectacle, ran. Spectacle, Josh. <laughs> and I was asking myself as I was watching it, okay, this is good enough, 
but when is it going to go up a notch and it's going to put that lump in my throat? Like the first movie does. And in the first one, they're not even really going for heavy emotion. It's not sad or even that inspirational, but there's just this connection between two characters, including Anna Kendrick, and this Breakfast Club reference even. Oh, that, wow. Josh, I'm that's I'm starting it. to understand your love. Every time I see it happen, I get, I get a little choked up when I watch Pitch Perfect. And I'm thinking, okay, but how are they going to deliver that in Pitch Perfect 2? And right after I was thinking that, they... Nail it. They absolutely nail it, Josh. I was highly emotional watching Pitch Perfect 2. What can I say? Now, I wasn't applauding wildly like the woman behind me, but I was I was into it. Your eyes are twinkling more than they did during our Fury Road review. I'll say that. <laughs> Maybe so. Speaking of Fury Road, I did write on Letterboxd, if you can only see one movie that opened last weekend, see Mad Max Fury Road. If you can only see one movie that opened last weekend 17 times, <laughs> see Pitch Perfect 2. <laughs> Either way, best where them girls at weekend ever. And that's a reference to one of the songs they sing in the movie. But I will say this, going back to our discussion of feminism in Fury Road. Strangely, a lot of crossover on the female empowerment front between these two films. So good weekend for that if you really want to get into that debate. One of the things that I liked about the movie, but was also surprised by a little bit here with Pitch Perfect 2 was the way Haley Steinfeld, who we first saw in the Coen Brothers' True Grit, she's a new character in the Barton Bell as a new member. And it really becomes almost her movie more than Kendrick's. But Kay Cannon, the writer, and Elizabeth Banks, the director, they've somehow made a movie that at once seems like it could be just a bridge to more Pitch Perfect movies because you could very much see it now focusing on the Haley Steinfeld character, while at the same time, you could see this movie being the end of it. It's as if they're saying, okay, this is a movie that's all about these women discovering their own voices, graduating literally from college, but also figuratively moving on to another time in their lives. And they're moving past all this acapella singing. And there really is nothing more to do with these characters. And that's where Kendrick sort of feels like she's sidelined a little bit. But there's a ton of jokes in this movie. There's a lot that don't work, but there's a lot of them that work. I was laughing out loud a ton throughout this movie, Josh. And I do... Heartily recommend Pitch Perfect 2. Well, I obviously can't offer much of a rebuttal. I know nothing about these films. I have to say, though, looking on Letterboxd, you are by far the most enthusiastic response that I've seen. And I know of another big fan of Pitch Perfect who is really disappointed is my pastor. Actually, really? Who's a big movie guy. And he was looking forward to this, went to see it this weekend. I'm just going to offer a few of his thoughts as a bit of a rebuttal. Aka awful. Pitch Perfect 2 lost whatever sweetness and humanity the first one had. Overblown, bad jokes, too many subplots, no real character stuff. Most of the musical numbers were forced. Mm. So I've Yeah, there's a lot that's forced, and it doesn't have the sweetness that the first one had. It goes in a much more poor taste sort of direction with the humor. I feel like, Josh, if you finally broke down and watched Pitch Perfect... There's no way that you would appreciate it as much as I do, because I'm not sure anybody does. I don't think that's possible. But I think you would hate Pitch Perfect, too. Uh, I think you'd tear it apart. But I'd like the first one. I do. Okay. I think you would. I will get to it some right. point. After Ikiru. <laughs> yeah, maybe a Kurosawa film, slightly more important. I guess I'll agree with you there. Let's move on now to a little bit of our own bad performing with Massacre Theater. We perform a scene, you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Weren't you just in the news, some show in Prague, Prague? Milan, darling, Milan. Super models. <laughs> I think super about them, spoiled, stupid little stick figures with poofy lips who think only about themselves. 
I used to design for gods. Hmm, but perhaps you'll come with a challenge, eh? Have a surprise to get your call. E, I just need a pass job. Hmm, this is Mega Mesh, outmoded, but very sturdy, and you've torn right through it. What have you been doing, Robert? Moonlighting hero work? Uh, must have happened a long time ago. I see. This is a hobo suit, darling. Oh, you can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. Fifteen years ago, maybe, but now... Oh, what do you mean? You designed it. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. You need a new suit. That much is certain. A new suit? Oh, where the heck am I going to get a new you suit? You can't! It's impossible! I'm far too busy, so ask me now before I again become sane. That is Brad Bird. Yes, the voice of Brad Bird as Edna E. Mode and Craig T. Nelson as Bob Parr, also known as Mr. Incredible in 2004's The Incredibles, which was written and directed by Bird. A couple weeks back on episode 537, Josh and guest host Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve had a great conversation about The Avengers, Age of Ultron, and shared their top five most anticipated movies of the summer. Obviously, both... Avengers Age of Ultron and The Incredibles are superhero movies, and Brad Bird's Tomorrowland made your list of most anticipated summer movies. I think you had it at number one. Is that right, Josh? I did. More tie-ins, though. More tie-ins abound. Adam Hofer in Memphis, Tennessee, sends us this. Apart from the obvious connection of both being about a team of superheroes, there are several other parallels between these two films. Both feature Samuel L. Jackson in a supporting role. Both feature characters with super strength, speed, and force field conjuration. Both are produced by companies that have been acquired by Disney. Both films have had sequels announced in the last six months. Both feature a climactic battle with a robot in a metropolitan area. Both have a henchwoman who ends up intentionally helping the heroes. Perhaps most interestingly, both feature a spawn of the primary team member who turns out to be a sort of deus ex machina as they bring previously unknown powers to the team that are necessary to foil the villain. And side note, the Edna Mode impersonation was spot on. It was a dead giveaway by the first sentence. Kudos. Absolutely. Tasha's performance was incredible. I think she was better than Brad Bird. Appropriately incredible for that film. She might have been better than Brad Bird. And I appreciate Tasha filling in and also doing such a great job with Massacre Theater. That was one of the overwhelming sentiments in the mailbag in those responses was seeing people praise Tasha for her dead on impersonation. So definitely some kudos there. And Josh, this film, I guess... Not surprisingly beloved by many film spotting listeners, or maybe it just was that spot on impersonation. The most entered massacre theater we've had in probably three years on the show. Three years? Yeah, it's huge. huge. It was a really obvious scene. True. That was one of our concerns, but it was worth it, I think. That's okay. We're going to balance that out a little bit. <laughs> I think we might. <laughs> this week, as we go down to maybe 17 entries for massacre theater, let's reach into the brimming, brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. That would be Simon Vanderveen. He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Congratulations, Simon. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it now, look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and yes, I do envision it being a bigger challenge because this violates one of my big rules here on Film Spotting, which is I usually want to make sure that I've seen the movie we're massacring. In this case, I don't think either of us have seen this movie. I have not seen this movie, and you also prefer to like the movie we're massacring. I do, and obviously, I don't know. I'm going to go out on a limb and it. say you wouldn't like this movie, <laughs> having not seen it. Entirely possible. I'm going to say you wouldn't like it. But we did think this one was certainly appropriate to 
the discussion we had earlier in the show around Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. I think that's all we're going to say. Josh, I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. You see, this tank isn't, isn't... What? Come on, just one little adjective and we'll have a whole sentence here. The tank isn't glad, sad, mad, lonely. Isn't up, 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 operational. How do I know you're not lying? Because if I was lying, your lungs would be full of cyanide gas. Cool. So we get a new tank. And And scene. scene. I just want to point out, you might have missed this, but there's a direction here in the script. (laughs) You were supposed to make choking sounds during one line. I did miss that. (laughs) That might have helped listeners a little bit. I don't think it would have. Well, all right. (laughs) As you know, I'm a terrible performer, and I just completely ignored that. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 1st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Also at filmspotting.net, you can participate in our current film spotting poll. Speaking of Brad Bird and Tomorrowland, we're asking you to name what you think is Brad Bird's best film. The Incredibles, not surprisingly, has taken a pretty solid lead, but not far behind. His debut, The Iron Giant, and his follow-up, The Beloved Ratatouille, are battling for second, stealing votes from those three. Bird's live-action debut, the also-very-good Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Even though the battle has probably been won in the Brad Bird poll, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. We are, due to some traveling and schedule conflicts, sharing... A previous top five this week, Car Scenes, which originally aired back in May of 2014, along with, appropriately enough, the Tom Hardy vehicle, Lock, in which Hardy faced more existential crises than gasoline shortage ones. Josh, you've got the cassette tape. Go ahead. Slide it in the player. Well, let me see if I remember how these things work. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Film spotting top five time. That's right. Josh and I are taking the show on the road in Gar Sky Blue 76 AMC Pacer. Excellent. <laughs> that scene from 1992's Wayne's World. And we are sharing our top five car scenes. As usual, there are some exceptions. We are not including car chases. That's a separate top five. So separate, in fact, that we've already done it here on Film Spotting back in May 2011. If you want to seek out that show, you can find that list at filmspotting.net. So we're just going with scenes that take place in a car it's, it's also, not about the action it's also not scenes from cars because that really <laughs> there was some threw confusion people on off twitter. on twitter <laughs> and i started getting all these suggestions from cars this was a great scene that was a great scene and i've kind of thought cars wasn't even that great of a movie our listeners are very very <laughs> literal we're calling this the i could have been a contender memorial yes. top five referencing marlon brando's classic scene from on the waterfront it does take place in a vehicle so We're giving some love to that, but not including it here on this week's top five. It's the memorial pick. And there are, of course, a lot of great films from the film spotting pantheon. Those movies we've set aside is so good that they are exempt from top five inclusion that take place in cars. I think it's especially important to mention the pantheon for this list because literally maybe everyone 
has a scene. I mean, we, we could go through some of these here, but if you look at the Pantheon list on the website, it, so, they'll come to mind right yeah, away. Yeah, I think we'll just list a few of them. We started the show with a reference to Pulp Fiction. There you I go. shot Marvin in the face. Raiders of the Lost Ark has a famous chase scene, mm-hmm. the truck chase. Sonny in The Godfather, he dies in that toll booth execution. There's a great scene in Scorsese's Taxi Driver with Martin Scorsese saying, see the woman in the window. We played that on the show recently. Yeah, really creepy scene. Goodfellas, Big Lebowski, Midnight Run. Yes, it's in the film spotting pantheon. In America, another movie we love has that great immigration scene. So a lot of picks, as we noted, from the film spotting pantheon. If you want to review that list, go to our website and click on top fives. The pantheon is right there. So now that we've got all of those out of the way, let's get to the ones we can pick, Josh. Your number five, Scene in a Car. Comes from Shaun of the Dead. Now, most good zombie movies do have a scene in which a family member turns to the dark side before our eyes, and that's the case for Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's affectionate 2004 zombie spoof. Uh, It's the moment where Phil turns zombie. Uh, Pegg's Sean here. He's squished in a car with friends and family fleeing for safety when they realize that Sean's dad, Phil played by the great Bill Nighy, is turning. The wonderful thing about Shaun of the Dead is that it manages horror, it manages comedy, and it manages real emotion, often at the same time, or in the same scene at least. And that definitely happens here, where Nighy starts to sense that uh, he is turning, and he's actually Shaun's adoptive dad. So there's this very touching speech he gives him about how he always wanted the best for him, but having just met him when he was a 12-year-old boy, how difficult it was, and they're sharing all all this, as we know, any second now, he's going to go. And he certainly does. The movie turns on a dime. It does so often in this film. Things turn on a dime. Uh, and then we find ourselves in this riff on that familiar horror scene, trapped in an enclosed place mm-hmm. with a zombie. So luckily for this list, that place is in a car. No, Watson. Well, we've got to keep moving. Well, how do we get, we got the car? Well, we haven't got time. What about the blunt objects? Do you want to get them? Sure, we can't just leave your dad. It's not my dad. Oh, sure. Mom, he was, but he's not anymore. I really think we got... No, listen to me, Mom, listen. There's not even your husband in there, okay? I know it looks like him, but there is nothing of the man you loved in that car now. Nothing. Let's go, shall we? Yeah, it's a great pick. It's one I did consider for sure. I think even as we go back to our discussion recently of The World's End... I singled out that scene in the intro. I go to that scene a lot because that really, for me, is one of those pivotal moments you can point to in the work of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as just what you said, that crossover. That yeah, ability it, it to be funny what and they do so horrifying, well. but so emotional and powerful. Very few people, I think, can pull off that combination. So great pick. My number five doesn't have that much nuance with it, Josh. I did deliberately here want to pick a scene that was funny, because as we're going to get to my top four, they're pretty grim somehow. I don't know if I actually equate cars. You don't like cars. You don't with, like driving. With darkness, but that's where I went with this list. So I wanted something a little bit more comedic, but I also wanted something that came from a definitive road movie. And that's what you get with my number five. It is the 1980 film National Lampoon's Vacation, directed by Harold Ramis, written by John Hughes. And the whole movie virtually takes place in the family truck truckster right. with the Griswolds on their hellish cross-country trek to Wally World. But the scene I'm going with is the one I affectionately call Don't Touch. It's right after Aunt Edna has died. Mm -hmm. It's pouring down rain. They're still hours away from Wally World. I think they're in Arizona somewhere. And it's just the worst possible conditions. And the family, they've hit rock bottom, and they stage a mutiny. I don't want to be in the car anymore. I want to go home. I don't want to go to Wally World. Clark, under the circumstances, I wouldn't mind if we just went home. In retrospect, it seems like a pretty bad idea driving out. It's been one disaster after another. 
Yeah, it's been a real drag, Dad. Maybe we can try it some other time. Wally World's overrated anyway. What do you think? I think you're all in the head. We're ten hours from the fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fun we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn smiles. You'll be whistling symphony doo out of your ass. <laughs> I gotta be crazy. I'm on a pilgrimage to see a moose. Praise Marty Moose. Holy sh Dad, you want to ask for something? Don't touch! Always one of my favorite Chevy Chase lines of all time when Russ, Anthony Michael Hall, tries to calm him down and touches him on the arm. And he's just lost it. Don't touch. He's lost it. There's no turning back. This has become this spiritual endeavor at this point. And yes, it does have to do certainly with them being trapped in that car together for that long. Of course, all those things going wrong doesn't help. But even if they didn't have all those bad turns along the way you have a feeling that they'd lose it at some point and he's definitely lost it there in that scene well it's great to hear you're such a loyal listener to the show adam because i actually had that exact scene uh, with michael phillips when uh, he was on uh, about a month ago top i'm a little five, behind top five i'm behind on <laughs> oh, episodes yeah, that's what everybody I always know says <laughs> top I five like to moments actually it was it, it was, was your number three so. i love i love that scene so funny <laughs> All right, my number four comes from a, a recent film, Like Someone in Love. This is Abbas Kiarostami's 2013 drama, one of the best movies of that year. And uh, just about every Kiarostami movie I've seen has had a significant scene in a car. Some of them, like Taste of Cherry, take place mostly in the car. I went with Like Someone in Love's car scene, though, because it's my favorite moment from that movie. And it's also slightly different from a lot of his car scenes, which uh, are two-person conversations, mm -hmm. whereas this one focuses on one passenger. Uh, that person is Akiko, played by Rin Takanashi. She's a high-end prostitute who's riding in a taxi on the way to a client while checking her voicemail messages. And those messages are a series of increasingly sad notes we can hear on the soundtrack from her grandmother, who is in town to visit her. Takanashi was on my 2013 list of top five discoveries, largely for the nuance she brought to this loaded solo scene. It comes early in the film, and it's really key in establishing her inner conflict. But the scene is also remarkable for the way Kiristami uses the car's window glass and reflections. Uh, overall in this movie, light and mirrors are really used beautifully. Here it's an array of shadows and colors from the passing neon signs that play across Takanashi's face that heightens the emotional conflict within her while somehow still matching the cool, sleek surface exterior that she's trying to maintain and project. Uh, it's a really lovely car scene, maybe a little more sophisticated in terms of the cinematography than what we talked about in Locke. This is one of those movies I was thinking about in comparison. Uh, nothing much happens in this scene, but, you know, everything for the story, in a way, does. Yeah, we both singled out that scene when we discussed Like Someone in Love, and I think at the end of the year, at least one of us, if not both of us, had it as our favorite shots. It was among our yep. favorite shots, yeah, just that, that single right. image of that character in the back seat and her crying, those tears coming down with the reflections of the city. My number four, I'm going with Bonnie and Clyde. The final scene from Bonnie and Clyde, The Dance of Death. Oh, wow. Which is I didn't even all, consider that. Yeah, it's yes. all centered on their vehicle. Someone betrays them by feigning 
that their truck has broken down. And so they, of course, have to stop their car. Warren Beatty, as Clyde actually does get out of the car, but Faye Dunaway's Bonnie stays inside. And I'm not going to break down the entire scene. I'm guessing a lot of people listening are familiar with this dance of death. It's a very famous death scene. It's a very famous finale to a film. And there's a great breakdown of it, a full sequence analysis of it based on comments by the director, Arthur Penn, over at the Directors Guild of America website, dga.org. I'll link to that directly in our show notes. But I love the scene for a lot of reasons. There is a shot directly meant to invoke the Zabruder film, the assassination of President Kennedy. And a lot of people do view that film, Bonnie and Clyde, which came out in 1967 through the prism of the Vietnam War, the horror of that final scene, the end reflecting the violence and the horror of war. And Arthur Penn said this about it. I didn't want it to be just a savage killing, which normal speed would have delivered. I wanted a residue of their romantic view of the world to still be present while they were being killed. So I rigged three high-speed cameras together at exactly the same vantage point, but at different speeds with different lenses to slow the action. Then there was our basic camera running at normal speed. The different speeds mitigated the savagery. This is a scene that is comprised of so many cuts and so many different images that it's difficult to focus on just one. But for me, that whole sequence is all about Bonnie's body in the front seat writhing. It is almost balletic how her body moves as it's being pelted with gunfire. And there's this real sense of the establishment fighting back against these two subversive characters, but the punishment not at all fitting the crime. So it's bravura filmmaking, but obviously as well for political and thematic effect. Yeah. And that was a real turning point for consideration of movie violence as well. When that arrived on the screen, the effect that it had on mm-hmm. audiences and, and the artistry that was being employed there. Okay, Adam, I'm an adult. So when we come back to finish our list of the best scenes in cars, will you please take off the child lock? I'll think about it. Stay with us. It's not about the money, money, money. We don't need your money, money, money. We just want to make the world Donations and thank you time, including, Josh, a trip to the film spotting P.O. box that was very fruitful. Exciting. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I can't wait to share it with you. We start with some new donors, Colin in Carfilly, Wales, and Louisa in Napier, New Zealand. She was one of the listeners who shared her insights on The Breakfast Club and our bonus content on our last show. Thank you, Louisa, for that. Although she was probably on your side. She was. So maybe not so nice. (laughs) Michael in Great Mills, Maryland, sends us a note. Sorry, it's not a whole lot, but I hope this helps. Also, watch Dr. Zhivago for the film history, the literary history, and the history history, damn it. Jordan Taylor Bartles in Melbourne, Australia, also writes in with the donation. I'm an aspiring screenwriter and director, and I have a master's in film production and film theory. I'm a true cinephile. Firstly, thank you for hours of entertainment, discussion, and the occasional feisty disagreements, often set in the car by myself, talking 
to no one alone. Secondly, I just saw Clouds of Sils Maria and it blew my mind. It is a career performance from Kristen Stewart, and while she still occasionally reverts to the Isabella Swan mannerisms, she has the promise and ability to become that next big thing for real this time. I am really excited to monitor her career from here on in and expect a review from the two, three, four of you soon. And finally, as it doesn't happen much, Michael Phillips, your methodical and calm contribution offers the show great balance, and I love it when you are on, even if I disagree. Anyway, it's not much, but hopefully you guys can buy a pizza or three. I like that idea, and thank you, Taylor, for drawing attention to Clouds of Sils Maria, the Olivier Assayas film, which I just caught up with about two weeks ago with my college buddies. I was in Minneapolis, had a free night, went and saw it, and loved it. I loved it. That's all I'm going to say about it for now. But Kristen Stewart is really, really good. She's so good. She certainly holds her own with Juliette Binoche. And that's saying something because she's really one of the best talents in movies of the past 20 years or so. And I was impressed with Kristen Stewart in that film. And I think we'll have more on Clouds of Sils Maria as the year goes on. A new Buck a Show donation comes to us from Stewart in Arlington, Virginia. And Josh, I don't know if you saw this email, but he sent us his thoughts on Slow West and basically just tore the movie apart couldn't believe where we were coming from and said this in summation i cannot understand the praise this boring underthought over signified stretch of road is getting entertainment weekly's review says about the brief and predictable shootout at the end imagine terrence malick directing the climax of the wild bunch and you're on the right track that's not a bad description are you kidding me are you kidding me? All caps this time from Stuart. Just to show I'm not a total curmudgeon, I also just made a buck a show donation. Thanks for all the work that goes into the podcast. So he tears us apart, but then he, he reaffirms the us. blow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gives us and some cash. What I love, too, is I think just today or yesterday I saw an email from another listener saying, we didn't praise Slow West enough. <laughs> can't, <laughs> can't win, win. on this no, one. <laughs> you can't. Thank you, Stuart. Another buck a show donation comes to us from Michelle Wizenant. Hope I'm saying that close to right. She's in Austin. She sent us a nice card. This is this is a handwritten note. Handwritten here. note. So excited you might be coming to Austin. It made me donate. First time. Listener since Maddie Ballgame. Love your show. <laughs> As you're going to hear when we get through more donations, there's a real Texas theme to this show. And we've been getting even more from Texas lately ever since we brought up possibly going to Austin. Are we going to have to give the money back if we don't do the live no, show? No, I think we just have to go. But we better be very careful about where we suggest we'll go next. So true. Ryan in Denton, Texas writes in as well. There you go, Texas. I feel like I've been emailing you guys a lot recently as I've been marathoning through some of the archives. Sorry for the deluge. I just listened to the 400th episode and something specific in that episode triggered my donation. As you guys transition from your review of Moonrise Kingdom into your top five things you learned from the movies, you quoted Coach Bobby Finstock's life philosophy, which is a line I've been quoting since I was seven years old. As soon as Josh said, never get less than 12 hours sleep a huge grin broke out of my face and i thought i cannot let this pass without a donation did you really say that though i'm racking my brain because and thinking, which host is more likely to make a teen wolf reference it's <laughs> probably not me it's got to be me yes okay you get an extra slice of pizza thank you we also got a gold level donation from steven in where else austin texas and another gold level donation from trevor brown in newark ohio but i want to come back to his here at the very end first we'll highlight scott from western kansas who sent us a platinum level donation and this is a return donation from scott thank you so much and another handwritten card 
As always, I appreciated your intelligent conversation about cinema this past year, especially your discussion in the Satchajit Ray Marathon. I would be amiss, however, if I failed to mention the excellent voice work by guest host Tasha Robinson in episode 493. What a villainous laugh. Keep up the great work. Ignore the lessons of whiplash. There is greatness everywhere. <laughs> we may have to share some pizza with Tasha. I'm Apparently. It sounds like that earned us part of that donation. Okay. Another donor, as I said, Trevor Brown in Newark, Ohio, one of the listeners who took advantage of the film spotting P.O. Box to send us a little bit of a gift. He starts out by saying, I realized about a month ago that I'd been listening to your show for over a year now and knew it was time to pay up. I now understand the pay the dealer catchphrase. At first, I thought it was some kind of gambling reference, but knowing that it refers to a potential drug habit makes a lot more sense because I'm now addicted to listening. I wish now that I had started listening to the podcast sooner, but I'm doing my best to catch up on previous episodes. So quick digression. Only because a recent listener brought up the idea that maybe it was a gambling reference, like pay the dealer, mm -hmm. you give them part of your right, winnings right. or something, did it occur to me that maybe I've been misinterpreting the pay the dealer line all along? I don't know. Do people who use drugs talk about paying their dealer? Uh, I just always assume the wrong guy. going back, well, I thought you'd be able to chime in here, Josh, <laughs> but going back to the original days of Cinecast and Cinecrack yeah. and people talking about the addictive nature of the show, I just assumed pay the dealer meant, you know, we'd been, we'd been taking the stuff for a little while. Now we had to finally pay up. Well, did a listener first start it? A listener did first start it, we but I don't remember the down context. That listener and do an investigation. <laughs> okay. Here. That's a digression. Anyway, he sent us a gift, Josh, and it's incredible. He says, I wanted to do more than just donate money. The check is for a buck a show when I started to now and for the upcoming year. I was in the local Lego store a few months ago, and they have a mini figure station. I was thinking about making some for my brother, and then it ran through my head about the Lego movie and how much Josh liked it, and that I thought the movie was great too. At first, I was only going to do figures of you too, but I just happened to have thousands of Lego bricks at home, so I decided to go ahead and make some place for you to sit. I assume that the show is recorded in the WBEZ studio. Yes, that's true. And I found a few images of what it looks like inside, and I did my best to capture that with the Legos I had at wow. hand. The picture hanging on the wall is from an old cinema textbook. Hint, it is from a movie on Josh's blind spotting list. The extra seats are for the likes of Michael Phillips or Scott Tobias. I did not use any of the craggle to put it together, so I hope that it is in one piece when it reaches you or not in a whole bunch of pieces. So yeah, I meant to bring it here tonight, Josh, and I forgot, but... I'm actually okay with that because it probably would have broken along the way. It is As of a now, replica. It's in one piece, it is in one piece. It's a replica of the WBEZ studio. It has glass. It has a board. You're kidding me. Two seats for us to swivel on. We even have our own mugs with our names on it. This is insane. And it does have two extra chairs and four microphones for our guests when they come on. It's awesome. We got. Can we get a picture? Yeah. Up at least. Yeah. You know what? I'll post it on Twitter. Okay. Good. I'll definitely take a shot. I'll post it on Twitter when That's we put unreal. this show up. Wow. Yeah, Thank you. It's, it's so great. Okay. One final final thing because it's kind of funny to me is something that was brought to my attention on Twitter by a listener. I'm sorry. I meant to look up who and I'm drawing a blank, but do you recall last week we shared the email from Thomas Darjean? Oh my goodness. It was all about pronunciations pronunci yes. and how we usually get them wrong and stuff. And then just beautiful irony. Cause it was really about how I finally got one, right? Not 20 seconds later, I read <laughs> some comments from Jeff and Jeff is in Muskogee. Oklahoma. It's Muskogee. <laughs> well, apparently I thought so. The listener on Twitter says to me, you were joking with that pronunciation of Muskogee, right? And I'm thinking, what's he talking about? There's no way I mispronounce Muskogee. There's only one way to say Muskogee, exactly how it looks. There's even a song, Merle Haggard, I believe, the Okie from Muskogee. So there's no way I would say it incorrectly. And then I got out my iPhone and I went to that part of the show 
and I heard myself, I think twice say Muskegee, like Tuskegee. <laughs> what was I doing? Just, just stick with Darjean. It was beautiful irony. I'm just going to pronounce every town name as Darjean. There you go. Even though that's actually his last name. The town is oh, Lyon. sorry about that. Lyon. <laughs> Lyon. There you go. <laughs> We're not perfect. What can we say? Thank you, everybody. Well, you've called my name. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, inspired by Mad Max Fury Road. And originally, last May, the Tom Hardy movie Lock, we're sharing our top five scenes in cars from movies. Josh, a quick recap of our five and four picks. At number five, I had Phil Turn Zombie, the scene from Shaun of the Dead. And my number four was the taxi ride from Like Someone in Love. Both great picks. Somehow I started out with Don't Touch, the scene with Chevy Chase losing his mind from National Lampoon's Vacation, and then the Dance of Death scene from Bonnie and Clyde, one of the all-time great movie climaxes. Radio listeners, if you want to hear our takes on those picks, along with a lot more talking in general, you can find the full version of the show at filmspotting.net or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Josh, your number three movie car scene. That scene you just heard, of course, a memorable one from Jurassic Park. It's your number three pick. Yeah, I don't think I'm as high on Jurassic Park as a lot of people. I think we did a Spielberg poll, something like that recently, and I was surprised at how highly people hold Jurassic Park in esteem. I think it's, you know, it is a lot of fun, but in some ways it plays like Jaws Light, you know, Steven Spielberg's kitty variation on his great monster movie slash character. Send that hate mail to josh at filmspotting.net. But I like it. I I know you do. And... There's one bona fide Jaws-worthy moment in Jurassic Park for me, and this is it, when the T-Rex breaks through the park's fence and attacks an SUV. Inside are the brother and sister, played by Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards. This is the vibrations in the cup of water scene, and the fact that that's all I really have to say, we didn't even need that clip, and it would immediately come into your mind, shows you how diabolically effective it is. Those cups are just one way for Spielberg to mercilessly stretch out the suspense as they wait for the T-Rex to appear. Uh, Here are some of his other tricks. I like how the boy puts on his toy night vision goggles, and it reminded me watching this again that Spielberg often wants us to see what's happening through the kid's eyes. Mm -hmm. So here's a way to do that. There's also the leg from the goat that had been fed to the T-Rex dropping onto the SUV's moonroof. And I notice there's no music here, which is odd for Spielberg, uh, but I think it's key for making this scene work. I mean, I like John Williams, but I almost always like a little less of him yeah, I'm with in you. his films. And and so that's uh, it's nice to have him in the background or really not there at all for this scene or at least the majority of it. And once the T-Rex does break through the fence, Spielberg doesn't just let the chaos erupt. It's not like building up to this moment and then bam, here we get all of the chaos. He continues to draw it out by having the dinosaur sniff the car, nudge it around. Uh, And the result of all this is that the whole scene takes advantage of these two conflicting instincts going on. The, The car is the kid's only protection, but it's also a trap. So what's protecting them becomes their trap. Then it switches back again, and you never know where you're going to stand during this scene. So my number three car scene, probably the best scene in Jurassic Park. Yeah, it really is a terrifying scene. It's the one, as we discussed back on that Spielberg show, I think it was our whole Spielberg spectacular. We devoted the top five to him and discussed maybe Close Encounters 
of the Third Kind, one of our Sacred Cow discussions. It's the scene where my six-year-old was done. Yeah, I believe it. Took the kids, was dumb enough to think that a six-year-old could handle Jurassic oh, Park. This was the 3D revival? I think it was. It was, it? Yeah. It was a 3D yeah. revival last year. That's why we <laughs> were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he just turned to me and his eyes were closed and he was terrified. And he said, I want to go home. <laughs> And I had to call my wife to come pick him up from the theater because of that scene. Um, I've been a horrible father. Will you come get our son? <laughs> That's it. My number three is a movie from 1950 by director Nicholas Ray. It's In a Lonely Place starring Humphrey Bogart. And some might call this pick, Josh, a cheat. You, in fact, may call it a cheat. I'm going to call it poetic license because it's a scene that actually doesn't take place in a car. What do you think? You're Michael Phillips? Yeah, somehow I miss the only <laughs> fundamental aspect of this list but it is a scene that's an enactment of a scene inside a car and bogart plays Dix. he's a hollywood screenwriter not a very prolific one or at least not one who is very highly regarded he doesn't have a lot of work going for him at this time and he becomes a suspect in the case of a murder of a hat check girl who was last seen going home with him the detective on the case is a guy named brub who was an old army buddy of his and Brub and his wife invite Dix over for dinner, and they're talking about how this murder may have happened. And Dix has some theories about it, even though he's a suspect. He kind of likes playing this game with this couple, and he shows them how the murder was probably committed. Brub, you sit down there. Sylvia, you sit there on Brub's right. Now, you're the killer. You're driving the car. This is the front seat. There's a lot I love about this scene, but the first thing is it's really pivotal because we know that the Dick's character has a temper, that he's a little off kilter, but we're confident he's innocent based on everything we've seen take place up to this point. But then we see his ability to envision this scene, to describe the details of it. Now, you're driving up the canyon. Your left hand's on the wheel. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. She's, uh, she's telling you she's done nothing wrong. You pretend to believe her. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person without using your hands. You're driving the car, and, and you're strangling her. You don't see her bulging eyes or protruding tongue. Go ahead, go ahead, bruv. Squeeze harder. He really gets into it. You hear it in his voice. You see it in Bogey's posture. And Nicholas Ray adds some music to heighten the tension and emphasize how Bogart's getting into it while also putting a light in his eyes just as the music comes in. And Dix really gets going. And it adds kind of this mad scientist element to it almost. But I also think of it as almost like he's the rearview mirror. Even though he's in front of them describing to them the action, it's like he's the voice in the back seat the brub can see who's telling him what to do and to put his arm around her a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter. And the best thing about it is that he's a screenwriter, of course, but this is his one chance to play director. He's actually blocking the scene. He sets everything up. He sets up the seats. He tells them where to sit. He gives them their motivation. And then the actors perform on their own. Brub does get so engrossed in it, he physically does start to hurt his wife as if he's murdering her. I certainly could have gone with some more standard, probably proper picks from In a Lonely Place because there's a lot of driving in it. One of the key scenes is a conversation Bogey has with his love interest played by Gloria Graham where he says, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. That certainly could have been on my list, but instead it's this scene where he says to him, I have a lot of experience in matters of this kind. I've killed dozens of people. 
in pictures. And there's just that great bogey slight pause before he says in pictures where he's just teasing them a little bit. But that car scene for me really was, even though it doesn't technically take place in a car, one of the first ones that popped into my mind. Well, the film spotting incident replay officials have considered whether your pick is a cheat. They've gotten back to me. They're allowing it, giving you an extra point for ingenious. Love it. So nice job. My number two comes from Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. It's the immensely dense 2012 film from Turkey's Nuri Bilga Ceylon. And yet, for all its profundity, it opens with a pretty simple setup. It has a group of law enforcement officials who are driving a murder suspect around the Turkish countryside. They're trying to find the spot where he supposedly buried the body of his victim, but can't remember now. There are a number of interior scenes in the car driving the suspect for this long opening section. But the first one is a really remarkable single take. It starts looking through the windshield, and we see two cops in the front seat two in the back, and then the suspect, played by Farat Tanis, squeezed in between. I mean, this is a little compact car, so they're all jammed in there. Uh, The lighting here is mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. It casts this soft glow on everyone but Tanis, and it emphasizes the dark shadows that are under his eyes. And then as these cops just chit-chat, despite the grim task they're undertaking, they're talking about yogurt for most of the time. We get the slowest zoom I think I've ever seen until the camera has moved from what's seemingly just outside of the front windshield all the way close into this close-up of Tannis's exhausted face as he starts to doze off. And the headlight of the car behind them even gives him sort of this halo uh, appearance. It's really a mesmerizing few minutes of banality and tragedy, insignificance and import all at the same time. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia has a number of these quietly profound moments, uh, which is why it was my number two film for 2012 and had to be on my list here. I think it was my number two as well. It was certainly yeah, in the top five. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. We love that movie and that scene. You're right. There's something so absurdly comedic amidst what's going on to see him in the back seat with his feet on the hump kind of you know like a kid like a kid kid. squeezed in with the grown-ups yeah and there's actually some great symmetry there josh with my number two completely unplanned i'm going with the car scene at the end of david fincher's seven this is if you go by his words you can call it the setting the example scene and i go back to a line from earlier in the film that has always stuck with me, and it's where Somerset Morgan Freeman is talking to Brad Pitt, and he says, if we catch John Doe and he turns out to be the devil, I mean if he's Satan himself, that might live up to our expectations, but he's not the devil, he's just a man. Now that line, like I said, always stuck with me with regard to this film, but it happens to be the line that ran through my head at the end of Zero Dark Thirty as well, thinking about Osama bin Laden, but it sets up what's so remarkable about this scene. We finally come face to face with the devil. And it turns out the devil is Kevin Spacey. And not only does he not have horns or appear to be some kind of gross monster, he's lucid and he makes valid points. Yes, he's a sociopath. It should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. I'm not suggesting that any of his victims deserve to die or die the way that they did. But at the very least, what comes out of this scene is the realization that John Doe wants the same thing that Mills and Somerset want, which is to make the world a better place. Only in a world this Could you even try to say these were innocent people and keep a straight face? But that's the point. We see a deadly sin on every street corner, in every home, and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's common. It's, it's trivial. We tolerate it morning, noon, and night. 
Well, not anymore. Fincher shoots Doe in the back, centered between Mills and Somerset. They kind of form this triangle where the scene cuts between the three men in single shots. You never see them that I can recall in a group shot. And each one is sort of different points on this spectrum in how to bring about change. Somerset, the Freeman character, basically gives up. He's realized that he can't make a difference, so he's retiring. Mills is young and brash and naive, and he thinks he can make change. So he's going to do it, but within the framework of society's rules and laws as a policeman. And then you've got John Doe who thinks, yes, he can also affect change, but he's going to do so within the framework of his own rules and laws outside of society. And that for me is something that always elevated this movie above a simple serial killer detective thriller. It's investigation of that concept. And I think you have to note, too, how he shoots Doe from behind the bars only. You only ever see Kevin Spacey's face with the bars in between you. And there could be a hundred different reasons, some very practical, maybe, that Fincher chose to do that. The effect for me is not so much keeping us safe from him, kind of like Hannibal Lecter in that cage, but not wanting to maybe overtly romanticize or humanize him. We are always keeping in mind that he is a prisoner, that he is in some way, the villain in the scene, it's enough that he dominates the conversation and he dominates the frame. As I said, he's the only one who's centered the entire time. And the whole thing, actually, I realized just watching it again today, Josh, is actually shot from Somerset's point of view. He's essentially, even though we never see the rearview mirror, it's as if he's looking in the rearview mirror and seeing him dead center behind them. And when we see Mills, he's only shot from Somerset. So it's almost like the Morgan Freeman character is seeing in these two men two different paths to take to affecting change. It's this sort of crisis he's been wrestling with the entire film. It's all there. It all plays out in that car scene, those different philosophies. Yeah, Seven is a movie that really has held up better than I expected. I did rewatch it not too long ago. Very subversive in in a lot of disturbing ways. Mm -hmm. Good pick. My number one is going to be a film that I'm going to have to let out of the penalty box for this show. It's Back to the Future. June 2012 was the last time I mentioned it, so it's been a while. So I think this will be okay. Now, movies have a lot of sex scenes in cars, This one is probably a bit kinkier than most as it features Michael J. Fox's Marty McFly kissing his teen mom, played by Leah Thompson. This is all wrong. I I don't know what it is. But when I kiss you, it's like I'm kissing my brother. Takes place, of course, after the 1985 Marty travels back to 1955, where he inadvertently alters the fate of his parents' romance by accidentally causing his mother to have a crush on him. Now, his plan in this scene, which I never really understood, is that while in the parking lot with Thompson's Lorraine at the school dance, he's going to aggressively put the moves on her so that she can be rescued by his dad, played Mm -hmm. by Crispin Glover, thereby reigniting their right romance. The problem is she's okay with Marty's moves, and in fact, she's the one who kisses him. Now, the actors and director Robert Zemeckis have a lot of fun with tweaking the conventions here of the romantic parking scene. It's a little bit of a meta riff on something like Splendor in the Grass. And Fox is just so funny. I I love watching him try to bide his time until George, his father, arrives on cue as they've planned. It's especially funny as he tries to desperately avert his eyes and failing when she takes off her jacket to Uh reveal this strapless gown. Fox has great timing there. There's something poignant, too, uh, about the little detail when his face drops when she pulls out this flask. And you understand from what you've seen before, and he even comments on it, uh, he connects it with the middle-aged alcoholic mother that he knows. So it's one of the things I've talked about loving about this film is the perspective it brings in terms of generations and your own, where you are in your life. And this is just a little touch of that here. I've also talked about 
Thompson giving the key performance in the film for me. And so, of course, she's good here too, smoothly transitioning from the comedy to that tender note when she does realize that the kiss doesn't quite feel right. So Back to the Future, it's out of the penalty box for this show, but it's going to have to go right back in. I've checked with the film spotting judges, and they also <laughs> will allow it. Well, thank you. Great pick. My number one, I'm sticking, wow, with the crime theme here. I can't help it. It was so hard to not pick some of my favorite crime theme movies for this list somehow. It's gun crazy, and it is the bank heist scene. It came up recently on the show. I did hear that. Sex-obsessed characters. Michael Michael's Phillips choice, yeah. mentioned these characters. Thanks for and, listening. Yeah, there you go. It inspired my number four pick, Bonnie and Clyde. Certainly, it's the Joseph Lewis movie from 1950, along with In a Lonely Place, my number three pick. And I went back and looked at my notes, Josh, from this movie. It was part of our film noir marathon back, I think, in 2007. And I found I was much more lukewarm on this film overall than I remembered. I liked it, and I still regard it as required noir viewing. The long take is really the hallmark of this film. You've got two characters in Bart and Annie who get married and go off on a crime spree. And like I said, Bonnie and Clyde not only influenced by it, but Badlands in any of these films where a couple gets together and goes off and commits heinous acts. The film is driven by, as Michael noted, sexual energy. And what I love about this Benkai scene, yes, it's famous for being a long take. It's about three minutes long. But it's the unsexiest part of the movie, I think, right? It de-glamorizes this whole notion of bank robbery, which so many movies do the opposite. They try to make it sexy and glamorize it. So you're watching for three minutes the camera positioned in the back seat. And a lot of the dialogue's improvised. It's these lead characters just going about the mundane aspects of beginning a bank heist. You're right, it is pretty crowded. I wonder if there's going to be a parking space. There's a car just pulled out. We can get in there. So I have to, yeah, yeah. Okay, right in Fast here. as you can. Don't worry. It's going to be a minute longer than I have to. Here goes nothing. Okay. And then he finally gets out to go in. She's the lookout. And we stay in the car with her. The camera stays in the car. And when she gets out to go talk to a policeman who walks by and she gets nervous, the camera shifts to point out the window and watch their conversation just like a person would. We're basically there watching what's going to unfold. And the whole thing does lull you into this kind of state of calm where finally it's broken by this burst of action as he comes out of the bank and the alarm is going off and he assaults the policeman and they race off and as they race off that camera just stays there in that backseat position and at one point she turns around to see if they're being chased and you can see this look of passion this eroticism in her eyes she's clearly turned on by this overall experience and she almost makes eye contact directly with us there we're forced to be an observer we're an accomplice to this heist by being stuck in the backseat of the car look behind us now will you is there anything in back of us? The pickup on this thing. It's all right. You sure there's no one yeah, behind us? it's all right. Go on, keep going. Next time, stay in the car. Listen. And he won't see you. You telling me? For me, watching that scene, the calm is broken just a little bit earlier, and it revealed to me how we have this relationship with the characters on a screen, depending on their space, where we are, where yeah. we feel like we are. It came when she gets out of the car. For mm -hmm. some reason, I, I, I feel like, okay, this will be okay. At least she's safe in the car. She steps out. We stay in it. As you mentioned, the camera just looks at her. And yeah. that's where all of a sudden things really hit another level for me. That That is an amazing sequence, yeah. Look again. Did anyone make that turn behind us? No. You sure? Yeah, I'm quite yeah. sure. 
So we did share some feedback, Josh, to this list. Great responses from listeners about some of the movies and scenes that we missed in our bonus content, which you can hear if you have the Film Spotting app. But since I know so many of our listeners don't necessarily have the app and don't hear that feedback, I thought we would share a little bit of it here because even though I overall am satisfied with my top five list, there are at least three picks here right off the bat that had I thought of them would have made me have to reconfigure my list a little bit. I think I probably would have made some different choices, starting with Josh Ashenmiller in L.A., who says The Sweet Hereafter, and he's thinking of the scene that's a flashback where there's a husband and wife and their three-year-old daughter has an allergic reaction to an insect sting, and they have to rush her to the hospital, and while the mom's driving, the dad has to perhaps perform an emergency tracheotomy. It's Really, really good and intense and one of my favorite films. Here's one that I wish I had remembered. It comes from Sean Gurn. Close Encounters, the UFO in the rear window. How did we not think of that? Yeah, that's brilliant. So good. Tom in Edinburgh, Scotland says, The first scene that came to my mind is from one of Adam's favorite films, according to his 2012 Sight and Sound list. It's the opening scene from Fellini's Eight and a Half, when Guido is trapped in his car in a nightmarish traffic jam. No sound, just panic and sinister faces watching him as he tries to escape from his smoke envelope car. Five Easy Pieces, that was a pick from Jean Tennant in Everly, Iowa. She said it's the moment when Jack Nicholson goes nuts inside his car, throwing a tantrum to beat all tantrums. Mark Weber in North Abington, Pennsylvania asks, no one had the Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman drunk driving scene from Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious? I don't forget that one, too. John DeLumba, did you consider the driving to the airport scene in Airplane with Robert Stacks, Rex Kramer, and another actor whose name I don't know? This scene always makes me laugh with Captain Kramer's ostensibly terrible driving hit a bicyclist and an ever-changing film reel in the background. Good stuff. Finally, Amy Sullivan in Germantown, Maryland notes three really good car-related scenes in the biking movie Breaking Away, and Amy's absolutely right. Those are our top five scenes in cars. We want to hear your picks. We'll take even more feedback on the great scenes that we missed, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. And we're at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of show archives and take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll in anticipation of next week's review of Tomorrowland. We're asking you about your favorite Brad Bird film. It's an Incredibles versus Rat Chef deathmatch. I'm going with a rat. In limited release, I'll See You in My Dreams. This is an intriguing new movie starring Blythe Danner as an older woman re-entering the world of dating Sam Elliott co-stars and In the Name of My Daughter, a true story murder mystery from France with Catherine Deneu. At the Music Box here in Chicago, Slow West, which we reviewed and recommended on last week's show, it stars film spotting madness champion for 2014, Michael Fassbender. I think that's how he introduces himself everywhere now. It's on his business card now. I know his agent's all over it. They're just waiting for the trophy that we're having made. Out in wide release, Poltergeist. Speaking of going back to movies like Vacation from the 80s, Sam Rockwell and Rosemary DeWitt star in this remake and Tomorrowland, the latest from Brad Bird starring George Clooney, opens as well. Next week, Josh, you're going to be off. And it's very possible I'm going to be off. So we were anticipating a review of Tomorrowland with Michael Phillips filling in for you. That may still happen. 
scheduling up in the air a little bit, just stay tuned to filmspotting.net or follow us at Filmspotting on Twitter for more show details in terms of what we're actually going to do next week. Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Filmspotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. The music this week, taken directly from Adam's iPod, it comes from Pitch Perfect and the Pitch Perfect 2 soundtrack. I did choose those tunes. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. <laughs> and I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.